Welcome back to another episode of How Do You Survive Your Twenties. My name is Jonah. I'm Joe. And we are your survival guides to get you through your twenties as we stumble through ourselves. Um, so today we have a very special episode. It won't be our usual stuff, um, but we did want to dedicate a special episode to this uh, as we had one of our friends of the shows, Matt, reach out to us um, a little while ago. Um, and Matt works as an accountant for the Black Lives Matter organization in America. I think it's in Atlanta is where it's based. Um, Paul is right anyway. <laughs> That's what he said in his voice clip. Um, but he reached out to us and he just wanted to share some of his thoughts, uh, which we thought was incredibly important. And uh, we also thought it was just good to continue on because it's just under a year um, since George Floyd died. It was May, months, yeah. Uh, yeah, May 25th, 2020. Um, and we just thought, you know, as it's you know, been 10, almost 11 months now, it's really important that we keep ourselves accountable as we keep going and not just have let it be like a phase, like mm. a, like Black Lives Matter was like a thing. Oh, when the pandemic happened, mm. but continue going. Yeah, shall we play the clip? Uh, yes, let's, you can start with the clip. Yeah, Matt introduces himself, it'll all be in there, so. Hi guys, um, I just wanted to hop on here. Um, my name is Matthew Nivens. I am from uh, the San Francisco Bay Area in Northern California, and I am an accountant that works for a nonprofit organization, um, Black Lives Matter. And a brief history on Black Lives Matter. Um, it originated in 2012 when uh, 16-year-old Trayvon Martin was um, killed walking around his neighborhood in a predominantly um, white neighborhood in Miami, Florida. And the guy who killed him thought he was, you know, a robber and got a month in prison and no justice at all for Trayvon happened. And that's kind of when an organization in uh, Atlanta, Georgia began to take form and that is how Black Lives Matter came to organize into an, into one organization. Um, but unfortunately from there, there was a big lull about seven years where there, there were a number of police shootings against young male black men. Um, I worked on uh, Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and one of our campaign promises was to enact police reform um, throughout the, the southern and midwestern United States where these um, police unions were just really not caring about the public perception that they target predominantly black and Latino neighborhoods and unjustly incarcerate and target young men that are usually no different than a white man, a white young man at their same age that maybe got into drugs or decided to make a wrong decision, but they pay a higher price because of their skin color. And that is one of the huge campaign um, promises that Hillary Clinton campaigned on in 2016. And that's why I joined her campaign. And I was a real, um, um, I grew up in a very conservative Republican family. And I initially viewed Black Lives Matter as a very small 
isolated event, but it quickly turned into something more important for me when I saw, um, there was a video of a young man in New York who was sitting outside of a, um, a barbershop and was minding his business and was told to get off the sidewalk by a New York police officer. And that New York police officer ended up strangling him um, while trying to arrest him. Um, And that kind of picked up the movement in 2016, but it faded away with the media, um, especially the news media, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. And that's when Donald Trump was campaigning on his tough on law and order, um, anti-immigration policies. And all of these just culminated into what happened in November of 2016. The Black Lives Matter movement took a back burner um, and wasn't really talked about that much because we had so much going on in the world in 2017 uh, 2018 came around, 2019, and then George Floyd. The difference with George Floyd, the pandemic we realized made Americans sit at home and they were doing less, they were you know going out less, they were keeping up with the news all the time. And so when this video circulated of a black man in Minneapolis, Minnesota, being unjustly strangled and held to the ground when he was really no threat to that officer and the other officer that was standing right by him. And people were like, oh my gosh, that's so wrong. And all of these news outlets picked up on it and it didn't go away because that's all that was in the news. Uh, It was either a COVID update on are the COVID shutdowns going to be more stringent? Are these governors around the state, around the United States going to implement them? And then this hits the news. It's the top news story. And all of my coworkers are like, wow, it took a pandemic, a global pandemic for America to realize hey, we've had a race problem for years within our police departments. Hey, remember the 1965 Los Angeles Watts riots when two uh, black men were pulled over for speeding on a highway and they were beaten to death? Hey, remember in 1991 when Rodney King was beat beaten almost to death by five LAPD officers in Los Angeles County. Hey, remember Trayvon Martin? And it's like, it just all culminated into this one violent act of murder against George Floyd. And then you started to see the people that were enabling this notion that oh, the police lives matter movement, blue lives matter. They put their heart on the line every day. They put their lives on the line and their families on the line when they go to work and turn on the uniform. The main difference, police officers have a choice. 
they have a choice to do what they do. African Americans do not have a choice to be a different skin color. They do not have a choice when they're pulled over at twice the rate of white Americans for just speeding tickets, a broken taillight, maybe. You just were pulled over because your registration was expired. These are all things that made me realize in 2016 and then reaffirmed them in 2020 that I grew up in a very white community in California. Um, I grew up in a very conservative part of California. I probably went to school with one black person out of a high school of 3,000. When I looked around and saw my peers and I experienced so much camaraderie with the people that I was around, I was like, there's no way these people could be, my friends could be racist, that they could be racist or prejudiced against people of color. And then when I posted support of Black Lives Matter starting in 2016, I slowly saw my Facebook friend list and my Instagram friend list go down. People were unfollowing me because they didn't want to see my message that people of color, especially African-Americans, are um, unjustly targeted by police officers. They are even disenfranchised when it comes to voting. Um, A lot of, especially in California and throughout the United States, a lot of um, black voters are thrown out from uh, voter rolls if they have a criminal record come up on a background check. That doesn't happen for other communities. And so when I saw this happening, I was like, wow, okay, there's a bit of a denial going on in the United States right now. So that is a whole movement of the Black Lives Matter is to make and bring awareness to communities where, you know, hey, I don't have a lot of people in color in my community. And the people of the color that I do interact with, I'm not seeing the injustice. And that's where you're getting a lot of the divide in the United States. Urban areas where these um, people are interacting with people of color on a more daily basis are seeing these injustices and therefore voting in alignment with policies that protect those minorities. And when you go to rural communities that have less people of color, less black people in them, they tend to not see the injustice that is brought upon them. And in doing so, because they do not see that, they are very against the Black Lives Matter movement. It is very, it's very divisive in American politics. Um, And it's really sad because I think of every individual is unique. Every individual deserves to have the same rights, to have the same voice, to have the same opportunities. 
regardless of their skin color. And that is the goal of the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. You know, whether that is one abroad in um, London or even France. I have cousins in France that live in um, northeastern Paris. And there are, not a lot, but a significant amount of um, immigrants of African, uh, sub-Saharan African descent. And it's the same thing there. They're, they're viewed a little differently because, you know, they're, they're a super minority in Paris and, um, you know, the police officers in Paris are kind of similar to their police habits in America where they police these black neighborhoods a little differently and they have a little more prejudice in their, in their, uh, tactics. That is the goal of the black lives matter movement without the white population recognizing this and standing up in solidarity, change will not happen. Change will not happen if white people take a back seat and take a side eye to the injustices that face our world today. And that's something that I've grappled with growing up. I I never thought that my family was racist. I never thought that my friends' families were racist. But I remember one time we went to a basketball game in a town called Fairfield. It's about 30 minutes from Napa, where I grew up. I would say maybe a quarter of their basketball team was black. And I remember we were in a team meeting before the game and one of my teammates said, they're going to beat us. And I was like, why, why would you say that? Why would you say that they were going to beat us? Like, you, you, we don't know them yet. And he immediately said, well, they're black. Of course they're going to win because it's what they do. They don't have anything else to do except play ball. And in that moment, I was a sophomore in high school. I was 16. That just rocked me to my core. I was, I was really beaten up over that when I heard my best friend say that. But thank God when the Black Lives Matter movement started in 2013, I was able to talk to my best friend and set and, and tell him, you know, when you said that, that really resonated with me. That shook me a wrong way. And I need to let you know why and why you said that is wrong. Like why, why is that, why that is wrong? And today he's an active member of Black Lives Matter because he sees that we grew up in a community of white privilege. We grew up in a community where we did not have to face police officers that were unjustly treating us. And that, that, that's really what I wanted to bring to the forefront to you guys. Um, we're making progress slowly but surely, but it's always an effort and it just make sure when you see someone or you hear your friend that is saying these things like, I don't see this injustice. I don't think it's a big deal. 
well, what, what would I do to make a difference? You can make a difference because you are the majority, okay? Without you, change can't really happen. And that's it. That's really it. So that's what I wanted to say. And uh, I hope your listeners hear this and think about it and ponder on it and act on it. Um, thanks, guys. I thought what Matt said was very interesting. And, and um, you know, he kind of refers to the U.S. And, and he obviously talks about his cousin's perspectives of, of what's happening in France and you know, as as we're all aware, this is a, an issue throughout the world. Absolutely. Um, because of the the um, the publicity of Black Lives Matter and the general push from many people to re-educate themselves on racial issues, um, I was came across. Uh, I mean, one of many. I'm <laughs> definitely not a niche uh, or definitely not unique in this um, in this finding, but. I started reading uh, the book Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo-Lodge. Uh, she's also got a really good podcast as well, which I recommend you check out. And it, again, talks about racial issues and is very powerful and um, very important to to listen to, to, to. And it's a good way to, to educate yourself. There's a section that I wanted to read, and this is kind of referring more to the situation in the UK. Um, obviously, us being from the UK, we should, <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's uh, like we said, it's a problem around the world, and uh, we've, you know, we'll we'll start at home and then uh, help elsewhere. So she said, and this is uh, in the cha- in the chapter um, in the sis called the system. If all racism was as easy to spot, grasp, and denounce as white extremism is, the task of the anti-racist would be simple. People feel that if a racist attack has not occurred or a racial derogatory racial term has not been uttered and action cannot can't be racist if a black person hasn't been spat at in the street or a suited white extremist politician hasn't lamented the lack of british jobs for british workers it's not racist and if the suited politician has said that then the racism of his statement will be up for debate because it's not racist to want to protect your country then there's the glaringly obvious point If white extremism really is the bar at which we set all racism, why and how does racism thrive in quarters in which those in charge do not align themselves with white extremist politics? The problem must run deeper. We tell ourselves that good people can't be racist. We seem to think that true racism only exists in the hearts of evil people. We tell ourselves that racism is about moral values, when instead it is about the survival strategy of systemic power, when swathes of the population vote for politicians and political efforts that explicitly use racism as a campaigning tool, we tell ourselves that huge sections of the electorate simply cannot be racist, as that would render them heartless monsters. But this isn't about good and bad people. The convert nature of structural racism is difficult to hold to account. It slips out of your hands easily, like a water snake toy. You can't spot it as easily as a St. George's flag and a bare belly as an English Defence League march. It's much more respectable than that. I appreciate that the word structural can feel and sound abstract. Structural. What does that even mean? I choose to use the word structural rather than institutional because I think it is built into spaces much broader than our more traditional institutions. Thinking of the big picture helps you to see the structures. 
Structural racism is dozens or hundreds or thousands of people with the same biases joining together to make up one organization and acting accordingly. Structural racism is an impenetrable white workplace culture set by these people where anyone who falls outside of the culture must conform or face failure. Structural is often the only way to capture what goes unnoticed. The silently raised eyebrows, the implicit bias, uh, sorry, biases, snap judgments made on perceptions of uh, competency. Mm. Yeah, that was really, really interesting while you were reading that. And it made me think about the, um, there's like a new anti-protest bill that's trying to be passed. It's just gone through the House of Commons and I think it goes to the House of Lords next, if I'm correct or not. Um, but it's, it's in there. And it basically, if you're not in the UK or you don't know, you just mean that the police would have a lot more control and be able to shut down or arrest protesters if they kind of show any form of kind of disturbance to yeah if they deem it serious yeah which could be you know any kind of which is basically any you know kind of protest is supposed to be that uh you know that's the point of the protest you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. and it's incredibly scary um especially because you're talking about politicians you know you know on paper any politician is supposed to be there to protect all the people mm. you know the swan and oaths protect all citizens but where do you ever find that actually happening mm. it's incredibly scary it is very scary and well I, I think i think there's lots of things that we could go into um and uh <laughs> you know as we've said before this is you know our fault and uh yeah. we've you know we if you you know you, you got to, you've got to be part of fixing the problem mm-hmm. uh and so you know, but at the same time you know there are better voices than ours in terms of educating yourself but i, I think it start you know you just start with the groundwork as well so it's it's the things that they mentioned there those those the biases that we have and it's important to, to kind of check yourself with that and mm-hmm. you know when you see someone who is different to you in whatever shape or form you know check your biases there and think why do i think like that uh, and work towards that there's other things as well that we can be doing so signing petitions like the anti-protest bill um or you know signing petitions to for fairer workplaces for you know different ethnicities specific specifically for black lives obviously um and then as well the donating to charitable organizations who do a lot of good work and provide uh extra kind of uh, opportunities for those who are disadvantaged simply because of their skin color mm-hmm. um y- you know the the things that i'm learning in this book are just how disadvantaged you are because of your skin color because of the structural institutions that she kind of mentions and the structures in society whether they're social or physical institutions uh, and so we combat that one day at a time one person at a time and checking ourselves first of all and then when things right you know just like kind of matt said about having that conversation with his best friend which is a hard thing to do mm-hmm. and like uh you know Rem- renny mentions you know we think racism we think evil right and then our friend says it who we know isn't evil uh but just needs uh, checking and uh and uh educating well, I was watching this um, this TikToker. Um, she came up on my like for you page, and she was ta- someone asked her, you know, what the difference, well, her experience, the difference between racism in the US compared to the UK. And she said that in the UK, the the racism was kind of a more in a microaggression sta- microaggression stage as opposed to so directly in your face, which I'm sure obviously it does happen for some people, but you know, it just 
wasn't that so much it was more on the microaggression stage and i think especially you know if you grow up somewhere in the uk where there are large parts of the you know uk which are just kind of these you know white places white mm-hmm. communities but it's just not diverse at all they don't people don't realize the you know racist habits that they're picking up because it doesn't seem so direct they don't realize it's racism mm. itself and you know as you're saying it's important to, to take those times to educate yourself on what being racist in the 21st century really is because it's still there it's still incredibly prominent but we've just kind of become ignorant and blind to what it really is today yeah i think a good way i mean i'm happy to kind of finish it there but a, a good way of well <sighs> think a good way of realizing the uh the biases that you might have is uh listening to an episode by another friend of the show Aisha she came on she talked about um how to make friends and she's she's really funny and she's doing really well with the podcast and the podcast is called uh the 20s podcast because uh, she tried to steal the name of our show but that's okay <laughs> and uh no, just joking. And um, she did an episode. Uh, let's talk about racism, family monologues. And she, you know, contacted uh, members of her family, and they gave their stories of um, the racism that they had received in their life, and obviously their own personal uh, perspective and and uh, experiences. And uh, we don't know Aisha very well. We've we've we met once, obviously, and we've chatted oh, a few times. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they because they were just they were just very real stories and i realized i realized as well especially um aisha's story about growing up how it was in school and how she was treated in school and we went to a school that was very very white um and then there was a few people with different ethnicities but but like i could you know i've got more fingers on my hand i think mm-hmm. uh i don't know what it was like in your year not but, so much different yeah. like five years on yeah exactly um and you know i kind of remember the conversations you'd have and the jokes that went around and and uh, never intentional to, to to be harmful but perhaps more harmful than than intended and uh yeah it's just a really good way of just kind of listening and and realizing hmm, maybe maybe that's not okay you know when you think something's okay and it's not uh, so that would be my recommendation absolutely and we'll leave um if you go to the show notes or um, description of the uh, episode today there'll be various links to different epi- uh, episodes websites <laughs> and, and if you have any like podcast episode rep- recommendations as well we'll leave all those in the show notes which we do really highly encourage you to take some time today this week in the very very near future to go through this and find mm you know, ways in which you are kind of, you know, slipping up in your everyday life, because I'm sure it most certainly is there um, mm. as it's kind of been thrown into us, you know, in society systemically. Mm. Great. Amazing. Well, thank you very much for listening, guys. And we hope you're able to take something from this episode today. And we appreciate you listening. And we hope you have a great week. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.